0: The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Rev. Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers.
1: Scholars have long been fascinated with how remarkably similar are the sayings of the Buddha and Jesus, although their lives are separated by five centuries. Each is born while the mother is on a journey, and neither birth occurs in a house. Heralds are present on both occasions, and they do very similar things, singing praises and announcing that a great event has occurred, identifying the parents and prophesying the child's glorious future. But it is the eerily similarity of their wisdom teachings that are most striking. Here are three examples. Jesus said, Do to others as you would have them do to you. Buddha said, "'Consider others as yourself.' Jesus said, "'If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also.' Buddha said, "'If anyone should give you a blow with his hand, with a stick or with a knife, you should abandon any desire and utter no evil words. "'Love your enemies,' Jesus said. "'Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. From anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt.' Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Buddha said, Hatreds do not cease in this world by hating, but by love. This is an eternal truth. Overcome anger by love. Overcome evil by good. Overcome the miser by giving. Overcome the liar by truth." Here ends readings from our tradition and another tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation.
2: Barbara Brown Taylor begins her class on Buddhism with a simple question to her students. What do you mean when you say God? And what happens next is that the class falls silent awkwardly silent, since everyone is supposed to know what the word God means, you know it's the big guy, the eye in the sky, the almighty, the decider, the man upstairs, or the woman upstairs, says a brave female freshman. Then a hush falls over the class because everyone everyone realizes they've been asked a question that's impossible to answer. As one scholar put it, we all point toward God, but then end up arguing over who has the best finger. So Dr. Taylor gives her students a moment to write one single definition on a three by five card, turn them in, she writes the answers on the board, anonymously of course. And some of the answers are expansive. One student said, God is the embodiment of absolute love, wisdom, and temperance. Another said, God is a possibility that one can choose to seize or abandon. Another student actually wrote, God is a big white guy in the sky. (laughs) These students are from North Georgia. But to me, the best answer is the most Buddhist answer because it is the most self-aware. Quote, mostly what I know about God, said one student, is how little I really know about God. Except that the Buddha would not have used the word God at all because Buddhist teachings never mention God. What they do talk about is suffering, both that which will come to all of us and that which we create for ourselves by insisting that things be different from the way they really are and then we become miserable because our illusions do not match up with reality or what the Buddhists say, what is, is. And so we get mad at what is instead of at the flawed workings of our own minds. Buddhism teaches that you must know the difference between wants and needs and you must control your wants or you will never be happy. But unlike Christianity, there's no God to rescue us or save us from our sins or punish the evil doers or give us land or wealth or a good parking space or anything else for that matter. The things that happen to us are the natural consequences of our actions and no one can relieve us of them. Compare this to the overwhelming language of helplessness in Christianity and the need to be rescued. And you can see why Buddhism is such a powerful corrective to religious approaches that stress salvation as coming from outside us rather than from inside us. 500 years before the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, Yeshua bar Yosef, not Jesus Christ, because like Buddha, Christ is an honorary title, a man named Siddhartha Gautama was born, a man who would one day be called the Buddha, which means the Awakened One. Unlike Jesus, who was born into poverty, Siddhartha was born into a wealthy family in a ruling class in what is present-day Nepal. Because his privileged life insulated him from suffering, it was not until he married, had a child, and went outside the royal enclosure where he'd been sequestered for the first time and saw an old man, a sick man, and a corpse This, he realized, was everyone's fate. Sickness, old age, and death. Impermanence is the only reality. He decided to leave his protected royal life and become a homeless holy man. He practiced a life of denial and discipline, but he also decided that meditative states alone were not enough. They provided no escape from suffering. So he abandoned the strict lifestyle of self-denial and asceticism, but he did not return to the pampered luxury of his early life. Rather, he pursued what he called the middle way, neither luxury nor poverty, and for the next 45 years he taught his students how to achieve enlightenment. When the Mayflower class arrived at the Dharma Center on a recent Wednesday evening to meet some uh, Oki Buddhists in their natural habitat, we first set up all the chairs that would fit into this small worship center, and we took note of how simple the space was, not ornate or full of shrines like the Hindu temple. Then a very pleasant, very measured, and consummately logical man named Dave Rose, a retired airline pilot, taught us for one hour the basics of Buddhism including a quick review of the Eightfold Path. And he told quite a few stories about how he practices his faith when he is driving on the highway and trying to decide whether to change lanes or just get mad at those who do. His first example of how we create our own suffering was to quote a friend he had seen that day who commented to him on how warm it was still in September he said I'm so done with summer the friend said this to Mr. Rose and Mr. Rose said now what good does it do to say that that you are done with summer will that change the temperature will that hasten the arrival of cooler weather no it will just add to your misery about things you cannot control And like all good Buddhists are wont to do, he pointed to his temple and he said, it's all in the mind we create our own reality. Then we discussed the five remembrances of Buddhism. And these are very important. Not only were they to the Buddha, but later to everyone's favorite modern Buddhist, Thich Nhat Hanh who said, these are central to the way and they often get chanted. You may find these depressing or you may find them enlightening, but here they are. And I just think I should ring a Tibetan singing bowl for each one of them. I, number one, I am subject to aging. There is no way to avoid aging. Number two, I am subject to ill health. There is no way to avoid illness. I am going to die. There is no way to avoid death. Everyone and everything that I love will change and I will be separated from them. And the last, my only true possessions are my actions and I cannot escape their consequences. Was that depressing? Or was it just refreshingly honest? Hmm? A level of spiritual maturity that, let's face it, would put most plastic surgeons out of business, not to mention the charlatans of eternal youth in a death-denying culture. And as for change, it is the only constant. What we try to hold on to, to grasp, will elude us and cause us suffering. This is attachment And it's a primary, perhaps the primary source of our suffering. Even those we love most will one day be separated from us or us from them. And even though this sounds terrible, terribly sad, can we not also see it as the ultimate mandate to cherish every single moment we have with those we love? Oh, Buddhism, why do you make so much sense to me? And couldn't you have just thrown in a little God talk somewhere so that Christians would have a harder time rolling their eyes and calling you all atheists? Or as Barbara Brown Taylor puts it, can you have a religion without God? And if you can, then what takes God's place? How do Buddhists manage without a deity to run the world, forgive sin, punish evil, and grant eternal life? Well... I can only imagine that the Buddha would say that if God runs the world, then there is no free will. And if only God can forgive sin, then by what infinitely corruptible formula does that transaction become a cosmic racket? Hint, hint, we call it the blood atonement. And if only God can punish evil, then what on earth is God doing these days except falling further and further behind after God went essentially AWOL at the Holocaust. If God is really responsible for everything that happens because God is pulling the strings at every level of human existence, then has God gone rogue on behalf of his chosen people, or has he just dozed off in some cosmic lawn chair somewhere while we destroy the earth and each other? And finally, if only God can grant eternal life, then why does that prospect of living forever seem so inherently selfish, in contrast to the selflessness that all God's prophets recommend? A few years ago, a Christian theologian named Paul Knitter wrote a fascinating book that arrived in my life at exactly the right moment. It's called Without Buddha, I Could Not Be a Christian. Paul Knitter, who holds the Paul Tillich Chair of Theology, World Religions and Culture at Union Seminary in New York, spoke at the University of Oklahoma seven years ago, signed a copy of his book to me, I took it home and devoured every word. Like so many of us, he had long struggled to believe what we were all told were the essentials of Christian faith, or as he put it, it sounds like this, God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, who is a personal being active in history and in our individual lives, whom we worship and pray to for help and guidance. I'm talking, he said, about his only begotten son who died for our sins and will come again at the end of time and who will grant eternal life and personal immortality to the body and soul of all those who answer God's call. But those who reject the call will be dispatched to a hellish punishment that will never, ever, ever end. Dr. Knitter said that it was only after he began to take seriously other religious traditions and other religious writings that he was able to more adequately understand his own, including the things he no longer believed and I have not believed for a long time. What's more, he continued, my deepest, most enjoyable, most difficult, and therefore most rewarding conversations have been with Buddhism and with Buddhists. It just so happens that Paul Nitter is married to a Buddhist. So when one of his students at Union asked Dr. Nitter if his infatuation with Buddhism was the equivalent of spiritually sleeping around he could honestly respond, nope, I'm being faithful by sleeping with my favorite Buddhist. (laughs) Yeah, while we're on the subject of religious fidelity, isn't it interesting how that student thought of the study of other religions as a kind of adultery? For starters, we mistakenly believe that Christianity itself just arose in isolation from the religious traditions around it, but that's not true. Not only of course was Judaism its major parental influence, but there were sibling religions who changed Christianity as well, including Samaritanism, Zoroastrianism, and Greco-Roman, Egyptian, and Syrian religions. By the seventh century, when Islam arrived, Christians thought differently about their religious images and manuscripts blending Buddhist, Taoist, and Christian teachings written under the influence of a Syriac monk named Alipin. Our faith did not drop from the sky written in the King James English. It is a mosaic of complicated cultural and religious influences that got grafted onto the tree that we really should call the Jesus tree, the Jesus movement. I prefer this to Christianity because I believe Jesus, like the Buddha, was a wisdom teacher, not a movement founder, and that he and the Buddha had so much in common that scholars have long produced these volumes of parallel sayings. Both Jesus and the Buddha stress love of enemy, which is a radical idea, and compassion at the heart of faith. Marcus Borg once noted that even though they were separated by 500 years, if the Buddha and Jesus ever met, they would not try to convert each other, but they would recognize each other. Both had life-transforming experiences at around age 30. Buddha under the bow tree, Jesus in the wilderness under the influence of his mentor, John the Baptist. Both began their renewal movements within their inherited religious traditions. Hinduism for the Buddha, and Judaism for Jesus. Neither one proclaimed themselves to be the founder of a new religion. Both were perceived as more than human, but both tried to reject those exalted claims. Time finally overwhelmed their humble protests, and by the fourth century, Jesus had become, quote, very God of very God in the Nicene Creed, and the Buddha had even longer been called the god of gods. This is what we do. Our teachers of righteousness, our bodhisattvas, point us toward the divine, and then we end up arguing over who has the best finger. Both the man who would one day be called the Buddha and another who would one day be called the Christ were teachers of wisdom, and wisdom is more than just ethical teachings. It requires more than just a list of things we ought to do and insist that we become that right thing at the center of ourselves. Both taught faith as a path or the way, which according to the book of Acts, was the very first name for the Jesus people, followers of the way. Both required a new way of seeing with the eyes of the heart, with multiple parallel sayings about seeing, sight, and light at the center of the aphorisms of Buddha and the parables of Jesus. Enlightenment for the Buddha means seeing differently. In the Christian tradition, we all sing a hymn that says, I once was blind, but now I see. Both the Buddha and Jesus stressed inner transformation over mere belief. Buddha said to let go of grasping that produces suffering, and Jesus said those who empty themselves will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be emptied. The last shall be first and the first last. Our worldly importance is measured by the contentment we feel in our inherent worthiness. So don't take the place of honor at a banquet, but take up your cross and follow me, said Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote, I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Just like the Buddha dying to an old way is the letting go of the world and oneself. Now just think of what such wisdom might mean in our time and place. Those of us who live in a culture of hyper-individualism and the manufacturing of a self-image indeed an idol of ourselves on social media both the buddha and jesus ended up in the same place you will know that this transformation has occurred enlightenment for the buddha and the kingdom of heaven for jesus which he said is within us when you become a compassionate person one could even say that becoming a bodhisattva is the goal of the christian life now you may be wondering Do I see any differences between the Buddha and Jesus? Indeed, I do see one very significant difference. There is a social and political passion in Jesus which we do not find in the Buddha. In addition to being a wisdom teacher and a healer, Jesus was also a social prophet. He directly challenged the domination systems of his day and their ruling elites, and he lived out an alternative social vision that was a direct threat to what the Bible calls the principalities and the powers. So they got rid of him. That's why they got rid of him. That's probably why his career lasted a year to three years at most, while the Buddha taught for nearly five decades. John Dominic Crossan noted that because Jesus was born into poverty and the Buddha into wealth, the man from Nazareth had a passion for justice that came from his personal experience of injustice. He also stood in a long line of God-intoxicated Jewish prophets who told people what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. Scholars have long speculated about the possibility that the teachings of Buddhism, which were centered in Alexandria on the Mediterranean coast of Egypt, might actually have found their way to the cities of the Jewish homeland, including to Sepphoris, a major city in Galilee only four miles from Nazareth. They had a theater in Sepphoris. It was the big city for Jesus. Did he go there? to go to the theater, and did he perhaps encounter Buddhist teachers as well? We will never know, but this much we do know. Both the Buddha and Jesus diagnosed the human condition perfectly. After life-transforming experiences of the sacred, they offered the same medicine for spiritual blindness, grasping, and self-preoccupation. The cure was seeing, letting go, dying to the old and being reborn, or in Christianity, we might say, even resurrected to the new. Another difference between Jesus and Buddha, however, was their apparent understanding of God. And there's no way to just kind of talk this one away. Their their understanding of God was diametrically opposed almost. God seemed personal to Jesus and impersonal to the Buddha. But recent scholarship has suggested that what the Buddha rejected was not the sacred, which he found everywhere in life as we live it, but God as a supernatural being separate from the universe. Jesus referred to God as Abba or Daddy, which certainly suggests a personal God. But I wonder sometimes if it would have been impossible in his time and place to speak of God in any other way. Yahweh was the protector of his people, the covenant maker, the divider of the Red Sea, and the unseen divine general in all their conflicts with all their enemies, which they wiped out and apparently God celebrated. But after two centuries of scientific discoveries about the nature of the universe we actually live in, and not the one where our God concepts came from, I now find the Buddhist ideas about the sacred to be not only more believable, but much, much less dangerous, and better for women, and better for the earth, and better for any chance we have to survive. Now I just cannot go back to those images of God I see on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, the elderly, white, bearded male reaching down They now look and feel like theological cartoons to me. So I have written a book to be released in a couple of months in which I say, I don't believe God is pulling the strings. I believe God is the string. And I don't believe God does anything. But without God, which is to me, the sacred connection of all things to all things, I don't believe anything gets done. Nothing's going to save us or this planet if we don't do it ourselves. It truly gives new meaning to that old saying, without God, we cannot, without us, God will not. So my question is, what does that make me? I don't know. Am I a Christian Buddhist or a Buddhist Christian? Or is Jesus my Bodhisattva? Or am I just some sort of theological mongrel? I don't know. I have chosen a Buddhist understanding of God, but a Christian view of social justice. So what do you call me? I don't care. Just don't call me late for supper. Namaste.
0: You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at MayflowerUCC.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. And a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland.
1: Thank you for listening.